1: Bar Podcast. Uh, uh, reform, let's uh, go. Yep. Uh, Welcome to the bar. Come on and pull up a seat and open up your Bible. What a wonderful feast, the living bread, and we're discussing what it means for the streets, the inner cities, and the burbs, and every person we meet. This where we challenge worldviews, that we hear from world news, in light of the scripture, yeah, we are here to serve you. We're your source for resources, to help you on your way. You battle mean forces. Yo, this is for the people who can see the importance of sound theology and the scripture that support it. Yeah. This is for the truth lovers, biblically reforming, preaching Christ to the nations. Yeah. Welcome to the modern reformation. Yeah. Welcome everybody to the bar. It's your guest host, David Knight from Exposit the Word, standing in for Dwayne. Different host, same show and same Top, top guests. So let's get to it because I am super excited to be coming through your speakers, your earbuds, wherever you are listening to the bar. And as always, we are grateful that you are listening and we love to start off the show by thanking you, the listeners, for tuning in and supporting the show. And just like we do every Tuesday, we bring you another awesome guest and this one is no different. So hello and welcome, Andy Nacelli.
2: It's a joy to be with you.
1: Thank you, Andy. Good to be with you. Andy, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds.
2: (laughs) Well, I I joyfully follow King Jesus. I'm married to my wife, Jenny. God has blessed us with four daughters. I have the privilege of pastoring a church called the North Church meets in the Minneapolis area. And I get to teach systematic theology, New Testament and ethics at Bethlehem College and Seminary, a school that John Piper is chancellor of. Wonderful. Really good stuff. So Andy,
1: take us back to the beginning. How did you become a Christian?
2: I actually grew up Mormon. My mom divorced my biological dad when I was young, about five, and remarried Charles Nacelli, who had just become a Christian by watching Jerry Falwell preach on TV in America. And um, shortly after that, around age eight, I heard the gospel in the Southern Baptist Church in Virginia. And I believe that's when God enabled me first to believe. And I've been believing ever since. Ah, Fantastic. I didn't know that about you. So when did you first feel a
1: call into Christian ministry?
2: Around age 14, uh, I sensed that I wanted to do not only whatever the Lord would have me do, but I sensed that it would be some form of full-time Christian ministry, and it was a push and pull. Was it going to be academic primarily or pastoring primarily, and I kept going back and forth and not sure, and eventually I settled on my current role about uh, 11 years ago, which is both. I get to be a pastor and professor at the same time. Us.
1: Yeah, Uh, Brilliant. Well, we're here to talk today about your brand new book. It's published by Crossway, titled Predestination, An Introduction. How did you come to write this book and why is it an important doctrine to
2: understand? Yeah, I I love studying the Bible and just showing how the whole Bible coheres and teaches systematically coherently on various topics. So I, I mentioned a moment ago, I teach systematic theology. So that's what does the whole Bible teach about? You name the topic, and and that's that's in the topic. That's what we're doing. And this particular topic focuses on what the Bible says about God's choosing people to save people and not save others before He created the world, and all the implications of that. So I just try to just ransack the Bible. What's everything the Bible says about that, and then organize it in a clear, concise way. So uh, Crossway has this short studies in systematic theology series, and that seemed like a good fit and uh, they were happy to let me join their, their series. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we might be using some
1: language today that some people are not familiar with. So just in case that is the case, um, the term predestination, just explain to us what that is, Andy.
2: Yeah, so real simply, you can hear it in the word, predestine. So the idea is that God destined ahead of time. So I'm going to be a little precise when I define it here. Here's my, my way of being as precise as I can. Predestination means God predetermined the destiny of certain individuals for salvation and others for condemnation. So there are two parts there. Save some. That's election and choose not to save others. That's what theologians call reprobation. Yeah. Brilliant. So, um, the the
1: positive way of looking at that would be talking about election in terms of, um, you know, systematic theology. You said that you've gone through the whole Bible and, and pulled out all of the references to, to build up and to understand exactly what the Bible teaches us about predestination. So what does the Bible teach us
2: specifically about election, Andy? A lot. Um, the way I, so my book has 15 chapters. The first 10 are about election, and then the last five are about reprobation. So the way I I divide it up is just saying what's the goal, and then ask when did God do this? When did He choose to save some? And then was it individuals or just a group? And was it based on forcing faith or not? And is it unfair? What about free will? How does this fit with God's desire that all be saved? Um, how, how does God accomplish his plan to save individuals? Does it involve prayer and preaching and evangelizing? and then uh, how do I know if God's elected me? and then did God elect babies who die? so those are those are the the ten questions I work through to talk about election. Yeah, brilliant. And we're going to be talking briefly
1: about many of these things and obviously you're going really in depth and, and do a really good job of talking about each of these um, subjects and questions within your, your your new book. So one of the things that you just spoke about there, Andy, is the goal of election. What does the Bible teach us about that? What is the
2: goal of election? Well. Uh... Let me tell you why this matters so much, and then I'll I'll answer your question. If I don't, if I'm looking at like a a mountain where there's an explosion happening, and I don't know why that's happening, I'll be confused. But if I know they're actually trying to build a tunnel through the mountain, and then I hear the explosion, I oh, well the goal is to build a tunnel through the mountain. Uh, That's that's why that's happening. If I didn't know that goal, I'd be like, what is going on? So similarly, it's it's really helpful to ask what is the goal of election, and The shortest way, I know how to put it, is that the goal of election is for God to save us to the praise of his glorious grace. Yeah. Yeah. And in
1: terms of God's plan, um, Andy, people often ask this question in terms of when, when did God make that plan? Does God change his mind? Did God always plan to save only the elect from before the world was even created?
2: I believe that's what scripture teaches. Can you back that up, Andy? It was a challenge. <laughs> How long do we have here? This is a short interview. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I would There are two, several passages to go to. The Two of the prime ones would be Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. So you're familiar with, with Romans 9. Um, you know, this is one of the strongest arguments in favor of the view that I believe Bible, the Bible teaches. There are two questions in Romans 9 that... Paul, he teaches something, and then he says, uh, so what then, does that mean this? And he asks the question, and he says, God forbid, no, it doesn't mean that. And the first question is, does this mean that that God's unfair? And he says, no, 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 God, God, God is fair. There, there's no injustice with God. And then the next question is, well, what about free will? What, what does this mean? That we don't have any choice in the matter. He says no, that that's not true either. There there is freedom, uh, but how dare you try to say that God is unjust in his in his uh, ordination? Here's what's so interesting: the if you're working through Romans nine and you explain it the way that. I understand it, and I, I would call myself a Calvinist. I think that's historically what this view is, but that term can scare people because people misunderstand what it means. So that word doesn't really matter. The the concept matters is that the God sovereignly chooses people based on his choice, not what he foresees will freely choose. Um, here's my point in Romans 9. If, if you're understanding Romans 9 the way that Calvinists understand it, it leads to those two objections meaning you're, 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 you're talking just like Paul's talking. It's leading to the same objections that Paul raises. But if you yeah. explain it in another way, like the Arminian way, it doesn't lead to those objections. In fact, the very objections Armenians have are those objections. Yeah. 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 So true. So true. So we know that we're not saved by
1: works. So, so what was the criteria that God uses to choose the elect?
2: Oh, you just got right to it there. Um the the Bible doesn't tell us uh, exactly what that is. It tells us what it's not. It's not our goodness or our loveliness or our works. There's a passage um in the Old Testament where where Paul's talking about Israel. He said, "I didn't choose you because you were a great nation, you're rich and uh, your morality or in your numbers. I I chose you because I love you." Mm. It's like it's not because I'm more lovable than someone else. It's that God freely, for whatever reasons He has that He hasn't disclosed to us, He chose us. That's it. That's the backstop. I can't get beyond that. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And it can be dangerous to speak where
1: the Bible is not clear as well. And you see, right. um, people sometimes get themselves into all sorts of trouble by filling in the the gaps, the the, mm. the, the white space where the, you know God isn't actually um, descriptive in terms of that, right? So. Yeah. You mentioned um, uh, reprobation earlier, and that's, again, another word that some people might not be familiar with. Just break that down
2: to What what is reprobation? So I mentioned earlier that predestination has two parts, and the the, the election and reprobation. So you can think of election as positive predestination and reprobation as negative predestination. So reprobation is that God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them. Does
1: this contradict Bible verses where it seems that God desires all people to be saved?
2: Uh, you might think that, um, but uh, I don't. I don't think so. There's so chapter I think it's seven in my book is all on that very topic, and what I do there. Is, is argue that we need to distinguish between two aspects of God's one will. So, um, are the two aspects, what God would like to see happen, and what God actually wills to happen. Even Arminians agree with that concept right there, that there's an aspect of what God wants to see happen and what he actually wills to happen. And the uh, classic example, of this from Scripture, is on the one hand God would like it that we not murder. Uh, that 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 is His moral command, and on the other hand, He wills He decrees that people would murder Jesus. <laughs> so that's what He actually wills, decrees to happen. So there are different ways theologians talk about these two aspects. Some say it's will of command versus decree, or moral versus sovereign, that sort of thing. But. Uh, it, what it really comes down to is what does God value more than saving all humans? And an Arminian and a Calvinist would agree, well, not all humans without exception will be saved. We're not universalists. And in some sense, God wills in two distinct ways. And God doesn't save all humans without exception because he values something else more highly. What's that something else? That's where the disagreement is. So for Arminians, uh, God more highly values, they would say something like, um, a genuinely loving relationship so that we're not robots and we have a, a free will that can decisively ultimately make the final choice. And according to Calvinism, say, well, no, God more highly values displaying his glory in mercy and wrath and receiving all the glory for sovereignly saving individuals. So God's choice is decisive. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, where you, you're hearing like, two aspects like it seems like it's schizophrenic like how can you how can god really desire to save people genuinely if he's decreed not to save them that sounds like it's fake it's like a fake desire and there's so many examples you could give i give i think five examples in the book of how we do this kind of stuff all the time um i'll give you one example quickly um I'm actually on an exercise bike right now while I'm talking to you. <laughs> it's a bike desk. Um, I'm I, I I try to be fit. I want to be fit, uh, so I, I do strength training and I try to eat healthy. Uh, so on the one hand, I have this desire to be fit um, and and healthy. On the other hand, I really enjoy foods that don't help with that goal. I like all kinds of sweets. I love carbohydrates. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So you you put all that together, like, am I? It's my desire to eat a donut, a fake desire, if I don't actually eat it because I more highly value uh, being fit? No. So we we already know intuitively what it's like to have conflicting desires. The thing is, with God, the desires don't conflict like ours do. God's not a man like us, but He presents anthropomorphically, for our sake, these two aspects of His one will to give us a glimpse of what He's like.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful, Andy. Thank you for explaining that. If God has already chosen who will be saved and who won't be, why do we
2: pray for people to be saved? Because that's the God-ordained means. It'd be like saying, if God's already ordained that you're going to get home tonight uh, from in that car, then when you're driving the car, why do you have to push the gas pedal or the brake or, or hold the steering wheel? This is going to happen, right? No, th- there's a means to accomplish the end. And God has told us the means for saving people include evangelism and prayer and preaching the word that 's how he does it, and we get to be part of that so it's a matter of obedience and honoring the lord and and that's joy it 's a joy for us to be part of that yeah that's
1: excellent, really well answered thank you for that. when we think about god 's sovereignty over everything, what do our prayers achieve, and how should should we think biblically about prayer? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I believe scripture teaches that God ordained everything that he's meticulously sovereign. So when we pray, it's not like we change God's mind. God is eternal, he's immutable. He he doesn't change. He's not a man that he should repent. From our perspective, it can seem like change, but it's a God-ordained means for him to accomplish his will. So what, is our, what do our prayers accomplish? Well, they are a means for working out God's decreed plan, and there is much good that is done in our own hearts when we obey the Lord in working out his plan. So let's just think about how this is for our good. If I go through life refusing to pray, that is arrogant, it's disobedient. It's it's gonna harm me. If I follow the Lord's commands and pray, that's going to benefit me by softening my heart, communion with the Lord, enjoying God. That there just nothing but benefits come from doing what the Lord asks us to do. Yeah. yeah, so good. Thank you.
1: How should understanding predestination biblically help us in our evangelism?
2: Yeah, it, it's funny that For whatever reasons, people who believe that God has predestined to save some people and not others, they think, oh, then you don't believe in evangelism. You study the history of the modern missions movement. It's all Calvinists at the beginning. Calvinists, the real Calvinists, believe in evangelism. We believe in missions very deeply. Uh, How do we put this together? Well, it's God has chosen some. And we get to be the means to bring them in. It's like in in Acts when he says, there are many people in the city who I've chosen. It's like we get to go find them. We get to discover who they are. That's why I never look at a person and just conclude, oh, that person's a reprobate. I I don't know. I assume everyone's fair game. So I want to share this good news, proclaim this good news to everyone indiscriminately. Yeah, brilliant. You mentioned that you're a
1: Calvinist. Uh, what is hyper Calvinism, Andy?
2: Oh, well, there's there are various versions of hyper Calvinism. Um, at least Here's a con- concise way to say it: a hyper Calvinist uh, would be one of the following five uh, items. So, it's um, you could deny that the gospel applies to everyone who hears. So like you would say, it applies only to certain people. A hyper-Calvinist might deny that faith is the duty of every sinner. A hyper-Calvinist might deny that the gospel makes any offer of Christ to the non-elect. A hyper-Calvinist may deny that there's such a thing as common grace, that is God's kindness to all people generally, like the rain falls on the just and the unjust on God's people and not his people. And uh, number five would be hyper-Calvinist denies that God has any sort of love for the non-elect. All of those versions uh, erode true evangelism and and, uh, distort the gospel, and I reject it all. Yeah. 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 What is double predestination? So... Uh, I defined predestination earlier as having both positive and negative aspects. Positive is election; negative is reprobation. If you believe that, then that that one way to, to refer to that shorthand is double predestination. But there are a couple uh, versions of that. One would see them as God choosing to save and choosing not to save in the same way, symmetrically. So be uh, equal or symmetrical double predestination. And there's another view, one that I hold, which is that God doesn't choose to save people in the same way that he chooses to pass over people. And that's unequal, non-symmetrical, double predestination. Yeah, yeah,
1: brilliant. You you touched on it earlier one, and you spoke about free will. And that's mm-hmm. often, often an objection, isn't it, when people start speaking about um, God's sovereignty. So just help
2: us out here, Andy, how much free will do we actually have? <laughs> So there's there are 15 chapters in the book, one chapter on free will. I spent more time researching and writing that chapter than the rest of the book combined. Uh, this is a minefield exegetically, theologically, philosophically. Um, so the way I, I'd boil it down is uh, either I am able to do this or that and, I, and my choice is decisive, or I freely choose what I most want. And it's based off of the wanter that's within me. So the way to illustrate this is, uh, do do you want to come to Christ if you're an unbeliever? And the answer is, not until God changes your heart. So we, we choose what we choose because we want what we want, because we are who we are. And the core of us is our heart. So the heart creates the desires, which, which leads to certain choices. So until God changes our wanter, changes our heart, we're never going to want to come to Christ. Yeah. Uh so I believe that regeneration is God through his spirit miraculously giving us a new heart that now we want to come to Christ. And that is a free choice, but it's a, it's free because our nature's been changed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Armenians describe God's foreknowledge as having God look down some corridor of time to then see who will make a decision for Christ. What are some problems um, with this kind of mindset, Andy?
2: Yeah, so the idea is that God saves individuals based on God looking ahead and seeing that they would freely choose him. And I would respond with at least seven arguments in reply. I'll just make them real quick here. One is that over and over and over, scripture teaches that God's sovereign choice is decisive, not human choices. And a lot of scripture for that. Number two, the basis in scripture for election is God's for love. It's not his foreknowledge of what we would do. It's his for love of particular people. Uh, number Three is what I shared earlier. The, the questions in Romans 9.14 and Romans 9.19 presuppose this un- unconditional election view. Uh, number four is that God foreknew people, not events, those whom he foreknew he predestined. So it's not him looking ahead and saying, oh, you're going to do this. No, he He looked ahead and chose people. And number five is that God's sovereign choice Removes all grounds for human boasting. Uh, scripture repeatedly teaches us we sh- we don't have a grounds for boasting. If my choice is decisive, that sure seems like a ground for boasting. And six, Jesus's sheep are his sheep even before they believe. Isn't that interesting? And then finally, and this is one's a, a a smaller one, but it's not insignificant. Election based on forcing faith, the Arminian view. That's actually not predestination. That's post destination. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So true, so true. Andy, in terms of personal
1: application, how can an individual watching or listening to us right now know if God has elected them?
2: Yeah, so for here, there are several passages in Scripture you can go to that directly answer that question. Um, the one that comes to mind uh, first for me is in Second Peter. Uh, the very beginning of, of Second Peter uh, exhorts us to confirm our election. And the way we do that is by cultivating these virtues that Second uh, Peter 1, 5 to 7 mention. So we're continually growing in virtues. So when we're persevering in faith and good works until the end, that is a means of confirming for us that we are elect. So election is never an excuse to be lazy or lawless, not at all. Yeah.
1: And finally, how should understanding predestination lead us to, to come and worship?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, when you study this accurately, you come away just profoundly humbled. There's nothing in me that merits God's choosing to save me. I man do nothing. I got nothing. It's not like you know gotta look down and you saw, okay, uh, there's something about Andy Nacelli that's more lovely than about this guy over here, not at all it's it's this. it's humbling it leads it's like um i when I teach on this, I'll show a picture of a guy at the top of a mountain peak that he just climbed and he's looking over this big vista and why why do people love being in context where it's just nature's huge, and they just us feel small. And the reason is that God made us for God. And when we're clicked in to reality, that means that we're going to feel really small, and God's going to look really big. Yeah. And that's what the doctrine of election does. It, it makes yeah. you feel really small, and it makes God look massive. Yeah, so good. So good. We're going to take
1: a really quick break before returning to hear Andy answer the free signature bar questions. Andy, as you know, every single guest that comes onto The Bar podcast gets asked these three very important questions. Are you ready?
2: All right, let's do this.
1: <laughs> Question one. What kind of music do you listen to, Andy?
2: Oh, Some people might think I'm pretty boring. Uh, by far, the person I listen to the most is Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, uh, you can't beat it. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Next signature bar question.
1: What book or books are you currently reading?
2: Well, I just finished reading a Systematic Theology by Steve Wellam. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. It's volume one of two. And uh, it's about a thousand pages. And I read this super carefully. Uh, it's phenomenal fantastic systematic theology. I'm also uh, reading the complete works of Sherlock Holmes again. So this morning I was listening to uh, The uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. (laughs)
1: Brilliant. That's so good. And last signature bar question, what podcasts or sermons do you listen to regularly?
2: I listen to a bunch. So every morning uh, after I, I listen to the scripture, I listen to two news podcasts. So there's one called The World and Everything in It and Al Moller's The Briefing. That's, they're more American-focused in politics, but they also do global news. And then I follow probably 15 or 20 other podcasts of sermons and lectures and interviews, um, mostly Reformed Brothers, um, but not exclusively that. And I just, I, I really enjoy it. I listen fast to like 2.5 speed, so I'm, I'm clipping through them. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, really good. Before we let you go, please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let everybody know how they can keep in touch with you on social media.
2: Yeah. So my name is Andy Nacelli. That's N like November, A S E L L I. So com is a hub. Uh, Twitter is at Andy Nacelli. I guess it's called X now, not Twitter. Uh, those are two main ways.
1: Excellent. Well, we'll make sure that we've got the link to the book and the link to your website and your Twitter uh, or your X account in the description below of wherever you're listening or watching. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you. And to the bar listeners, thank you again for tuning in. And make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you can get the show every single Tuesday. And just like today, we have some top, top guests coming up that you do not want to miss out on. And remember to check out the bar podcast website where you can listen to Dwayne's huge archive of interviews, which will keep you nice and busy. Until next time, to laugh for now.